Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. We'll turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be reading uh, from chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 21 this morning. And as I spent time in, in this book this week, what I found that I love about uh, the book of Ephesians so much is the simplicity and the, the richness of the message to the church. And it got me to thinking that if the book of Ephesians was a college course, it might be called Christianity 101. It'd be a required course because it emphasizes the fundamentals of the faith and defines the identity and the role of the Christian. So it identifies, defines the identity and the role of the Christian. The course syllabus would delineate the course expectations and would um, help us to understand and gain proficiency in subject matter pertaining to the love of God, the power of God, the call of man, God's grand plan, and probably the, the main point that we'll be focused on today expectations for Christian living. Upon completion of this course, you would understand who you are and what you're supposed to do. As it clearly describes the expectations and the responsibilities for the believer. Wouldn't that actually be a great class? So upon graduation, you would receive your degree... And you would become kingdom citizens. You'd be alumni of of that college. And you'd be granted a position as Christian follower of Christ. And then it would be time to go to work. So this, of course, is a hypothetical scenario, but it's really not all that far from reality. As Christians, we are king's servants entrusted with his property with the expectation to give him a return on his investment. And I pray that as we hear from Paul's letter, that we'll be able to determine if we are on our way to hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that whoever, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of this, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go before the Lord this morning. Father, we come before you this, this morning as a privileged people, as those who were once darkness but, but are now light in the Lord. At one time we did not know you, and now we have come to know you. And Lord, that's just a radical thought, an, an amazing transformation that took place in the lives of everyone that you've called to be your own. And we know, Father, that that, that calling came at a great price. And Father, we thank you even for, for the love of Jesus, for the obedience of Christ, for his loving sacrifice that made access to you just possible. And Father, now we have this thing called the Christian life that we are to walk out. And we, we thank you for your word, for your, for your illumining word to light our way. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to teach us. And Father, even today I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would speak to us. And that in our lives we would magnify the name of Christ, that we would 
glorify you. So we pray uh, for your leading today and for the building up of your church, for our edification. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So continuing that, that thought of the Christian vocation, being workers and, and servants of the Lord, Are you satisfied in, in the job that he's, been, that he's given you? Did you know that a, a key factor related to job dissatisfaction is role ambiguity, vagueness? The worker is unclear with their identity and the duties uh, that they're assigned within their organization. When reporting relationships are confusing, when job descriptions are vague, when a person just doesn't know where they fit in, they tend to be unhappy. They don't become proficient at their job and they likely won't flourish as an employee. They would fail to make meaningful contributions for the organization and they likely wouldn't survive the probation period and they probably wouldn't collect uh, a pension upon retirement. This is really an undesirable condition. It's undesirable for the organization, and it's unfortunate for the employee. When it comes to the Christian life and being servants of the Lord, it's really no different. The Christian who doesn't know where they fit in into this world is going to struggle in their own walks and struggle to be faithful servants. The book of Ephesians, especially these latter chapters, brings clarity to what it means to to live as Christians in a world that's competing for your allegiance and affections. And if this seems basic or elementary to you uh, seasoned Christians, and there might be one or two of you out there, Um, then hopefully these things serve as um, an encouraging reminder to you. Um, But if you're young in the faith or younger in the faith, maybe you will uh, glean some wisdom from the Apostle Paul and what he has for us this morning. So just a little bit of background before we get started. Uh, This letter was written by uh, Paul while under house arrest in Rome. Um, uh, and is written to the church in Ephesus. And while away from them, he desired to impart to them the knowledge necessary to strengthen their church. There are some things that he just really wanted to make sure that they had nailed down. He, obviously being in prison, couldn't go and visit, him, uh, visit them himself. Uh, this book has six chapters, but was, of course, uh, just originally one continuous letter to the church that was uh, later broken down into chapter and verse for uh, ease of identifying specific areas in his letter. Uh, That said, the the first three chapters focus on identity. Paul seeks to define who the Christian is, and then in chapters 4 through 6, he gets into the application These are the 
instructions for, uh, uh, for living, for living as a believer and for uh, how the church is to operate. So he makes it clear what they're supposed to do. Role confusion problem remedied. So why does Paul present his letter to the Ephesian church in this way? And, and I think we just stated it. When you know who you are, you know what you're supposed to do. Makes sense, right? And so if you were a baseball player and you were signed as a shortstop for the Colorado Rockies, you would know who you are. And for, for those who don't know who the shortstop for the Colorado Rockies uh, is, his name is Garrett Hampson. And I didn't know either. I had to look him up. Uh, his batting average for the season right now is 216. I think there's some room for improvement there. Might be part of the reason why the Rockies are dead last in the National League uh, West. Um, that aside, if you were the shortstop for the Rockies, you would know who you are. And since you know who you are, you know what to do. You know that you would need to put on your Rockies uniform. And you would go to Coors Field. And as an infielder, you would do the things that an infielder does. You would bring your glove. You would practice your fielding and your throwing and your hitting. And if you're Garrett Hampson, I might recommend that you take some extra BP. Um, but you would, do, you would stretch, you would run, you would do conditioning, strength training. You would do all the things that you need to do uh, to be ready for game day. Those are the things you would do. It wouldn't make sense for Garrett to show up wearing another team's uniform, playing a different position, or taking a seat in the stands, or worse yet, not showing up to the ballpark at all. So we can see how important it is to have these identity details worked out. Why? Because when you know who you are, you know what you're supposed to do. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to get to. This is what he's trying to accomplish when he writes to the church. He wants to remind them of how they're supposed to live and how they're not supposed to live. So your homework for this week is to read the rest of Ephesians on your own. Um, but for today, we'll just uh, walk through verses 1 through 21. So beginning in chapter 1, uh, your, your Bible, in your Bible, chapter 5 might have a title uh, for me. Um, mine was, my title for this chapter was Be Imitators of God. Yours might say Walk in Love or living in the light, and they all communicate uh, roughly the same thing. Chapter 1 begins with, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here in verse 1, Paul starts off with, Therefore, and that indicates that he's continuing a thought from the, the previous chapter where he contrasts the Christian life with the life of the Gentile. He was explaining what it means to have a new life in Christ and illustrating that there's a difference between these two groups. What kind of differences? 
For starters, he states that the Gentiles are limited in their ability to live rightly because they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from God. They're godless. Paul says that their condition is related to their hard-heartedness. They're hard-hearted. And additionally, he states that they're calloused. They're led by their senses, greedy, and practice every kind of impurity. This is how the Gentiles operated then, and really if you take a look around at how the world operates, it's no different. Uh, They operate the same way today. And I appreciate that Paul doesn't go into uh, elaborate detail as to what every kind of impurity means so that we don't get distracted from the point he's trying to make, which is this. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't live as the world lives. He says that the, the Gentiles are limited in their understanding. And this really implies that those who are not Gentiles, those who belong to God and have been adopted by God, do not have those same limitations. They're not subject to a darkened understanding because they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And as we know, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to confirm spiritual truth to us. So if a person's in Christ, they are a new creation, and now they're not part of the world any longer. You don't belong to it. Your life is hidden in Christ. And when you belong to God, and when you're part of the church, and when you're sharers in the life of Christ, you are called to a new way of living. One that is fitting for saints. One that is suitable. uh, One that is worthy of our calling and vocation as workers for God's kingdom. He makes it very clear that there's a distinction between the Christian and the unbeliever. It should be very visible. It should be noticeable and distinct from how the world operates. So, what were they instructed to do? Paul says, be imitators of God. When we come to faith, when we experience conversion, it doesn't mean that we have all the information and experience instantly to, to immediately go from sinner to saint. We're not perfected all at once. Sanctification is a process. The Word says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And this is a wonderful promise, and it should encourage us. It should lend, uh, lend us hope and assurance that, that we'll make progress in our walks and that in due course of time we'll experience, uh, we'll gain maturity and, and we'll gain experience. But it might make a person wonder how is this sanctifica- sanctification process 
played out? How's it going to work out? How are we, uh, how is he going to complete the work that he began in us? How will we be conformed to the image of Christ? And the answer begins with, by imitating God. Uh, A little story here. Uh, Back when my son Nate was a, a teenager, he expressed interest in learning how to change the oil in the car. And he couldn't do it on his own, but I knew that I could teach him. I've changed oil dozens of times. Heck, I'm an oil-changing professional. I'm a master at it. Um, so I thought my approach would be, I'll just have him copy me. So Nate imitated his father. I think Kathy even took a, a picture of us where both of us have um, like work clothes on. We have like coveralls on. We knew it was going to get messy. Um, So we wore the coveralls. He watched what tools uh, that we used. Um, He needed a little bit of help. We made a little bit of a mess. And the job took a little bit longer than it ordinarily would have taken. Um, But he imitated me, and it wasn't perfect. Uh, But you could tell that he would eventually be able to do it on his own. And as Christians, we've been given a new life by our Father, and we aren't expected to fully know what we're doing without a little guidance as well. But God is there to guide us. And with new life comes a new lifestyle. One that calls us to imitate Him. To try to see things as He sees things. And to do things that He would do. But to our our natural mind here, imitating God seems like an impossibility, right? As uh, finite and failing and fallible people, how are we supposed to imitate God perfectly? And the short answer is, we, we can't. We won't be able to. We can't imitate God perfectly. But we can walk and strive, and press on, and imperfectly, imperfectly imitate God's love. Because the point is that perfection is not required, but pursuit is. Perfection is not required, but pursuit is. The overarching goal for us as we live Imitating God is that we walk in love. And a little secret, when we walk in love for God and when we walk in love for others, so many other things pertaining to the Christian life just naturally fall into place. And if we don't know what walking in love looks like, we don't have to look any further than looking at Jesus and the life that he lived. His life was characterized was characterized by many things, uh, but surely it was characterized by love, service, obedience, and sacrifice, to name a few. So looking at some of how these attributes were lived out in uh, Jesus' life, 
We have love uh, from John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think that verse is particularly interesting because there's two people that are demonstrating love. It says God demonstrates his love and Christ is the one who who died for us lovingly. Service. Love is service-oriented. And we see the, the Lord serving and ministering to, to others throughout the Scriptures, but certainly we see it when uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Um, that was really a an amazing thing that he did and was confusing to the disciples. It was uh, without regard to his self-image. He did what others were unwilling to do. Jesus didn't have any identity issues. He wasn't worried what anybody else thought. He knew who he was. He knew that he had come from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. This gave him freedom to serve others and to wash their feet, which is a job that was ordinarily reserved for servants. How many of us can, can live freely without fear of judgment in, in the world? I think we're all a little bit guarded from, from time to time. Obedience. Hebrews 10 says, Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus knew his role and he, and he knew what he was supposed to do saying, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And as for sacrifice, I think it goes without saying. And I don't think it could be summed up in in a verse or two. But as Jesus walked in love, he sacrificed his perfect life for our imperfect lives. He said that I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The scriptures call the Christian to walk lives of love, to imitate God and to live the life of Christ. Do we love, serve, obey, and sacrifice the way that we ought to? And this question isn't meant to make anybody feel guilty or ashamed if there are areas of of sin or neglect in their lives. But it does serve to give us opportunity to examine ourselves. And that self-examination is a, a good and a healthy thing to do, and we should do it more often than we do it. Psalm uh, 139, David asked the Lord, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The hope is that, that we imitate God, that we walk in love to ensure that we're on the right path and that we are living lives that are pleasing to him.
All right, looking into the, uh, onto the next section, Paul's instructing the church on how to live rightly. This is a little bit where the rubber meets the road. He approaches the subject a little bit differently, though. For the most part, he doesn't provide direct instruction on what to do. Rather, he informs them on the things that they are not to do. So looking at verses 3 through 7, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. That's just one of those passages that I think we all just like to blaze through and not really camp out on uh, for too long because it's convicting. We know our thoughts. We know what, what runs through our minds. We know how we think. Paul does some interesting things here because he, of all the things that he could mention, he brings up foolish talking and crude joking. And, and I wonder, why does Paul have such a problem with this? I mean, we're not talking about murder or menacing or assault uh, or stealing or anything like that. Why is foolish talking and crude joking an issue. And getting to the root cause of the behavior, we see that that these activities, uh, these mannerisms are uh, are signs of of a life where God is uh, God's will is not at the center of it. Those who practice such things are likely Going with the flow and, you know, like going with the flow of the world and, and how they operate. We're just participating and going right along with them. And that would be acting out of character for the Christian. And it's self-serving and, it, um, and it's pleasing ourselves and it's pleasing other people. When the Christian, uh, the Christian life should be characterized by a desire to please God. These people oftentimes succumb to peer pressure. They, they worry about what others think of them. So we join right on in with them and we say the things that they say and we do the things that they do. And before too long, they're the ones doing the influencing and we look more and more like them as we are pleasing them and we're not pleasing God. So foolish talking and crude joking is unbecoming of a, of a saint and really a symptom of a greater problem. So Paul says, don't be filthy, foolish, or engage in crude talking. Instead, be content with the life that God has for you and let your desires and affections be for Him 
and be thankful. That's the life we should live. That's the way we should be living this Christian life. He continues in verse 5 about sexual immorality and impurity. And again, the issue pertains to loyalty and devotion, perception, and witness. It's a sign of where your heart lies and where you find your love and fulfillment, significance, and satisfaction. And if it's not with God, it's a false love. The world will, I've said this before, the world will promise you everything and it'll take everything from you. Don't align yourself with the world, he says. Don't become partners with them. And for most of us, especially for most parents, that really could end the, the discussion. I've heard enough, I get it, I understand. Um, but Paul presses on. He doesn't really want to let that go. And it's like talking with, with one of your children and you're explaining something, and I'm sure they get it, but you can't help just take it a little bit further, not because you don't think that they get it, but because these things are just too important to gloss over and to leave any room for uh, misinterpretation or any misunderstanding. In verse 8, he uses the analogy of darkness and light to again communicate to the church who they are and what they're supposed to do. Verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so what's Paul getting at here? And he's saying this. It's Christianity 101. Be who you are. Be who you are, and you will bear good fruit. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You will not walk in the futility of your mind. You will not be foolish or impure. Imitate God. Walk in love. The results will be good. Next, Paul says something. It's really just a wild thought. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I mean, have you ever just stopped for a minute and paused and said, what can I do in this situation or in life in general that would be pleasing to God? Uh, it's, it's an excellent mindset to have and it's, it's uh, akin to the concept of praying without ceasing. If we were to walk with the goal of doing that which was pleasing to the Lord, we would be walking in the light and free from many of life's burdens, frustrations, and temptations. We would likely not be tempted to take part in what Paul is calling the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, we would be strengthened in our inner man and have the ability to not join in and participate in, in what they're doing, 
rather we would have that ability to expose those works. Verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The believer imitating God and walking in love is a light to the world. Where there is darkness, and darkness can be defined um, as impurity, improper living, bad deeds, sin, injustice, where, where things like these are present and a light is shined in the darkness, it becomes exposed. It's revealed and it's made visible. The wrong things that these things are can now be contrasted with truth and righteousness. Exposing darkness to light has a, a sanitizing and a disinfecting quality to it. Therefore, it's good for us Christians to, to be in the world and to bear the fragrance of Christ in it. But we're not to be of the world. There's, there's a difference there. We shouldn't be bearing the fragrance of the world. Matthew 5, 16, uh, 5, 16 calls us to let our light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So yes, we are to be in the, in the world and we should be doing good works, but we would do well to... Also recall the commandment that Jesus gave his disciples, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, and if you, if you have love for one another. The Loving the body is, is also a witness to the world. And we can't neglect the gathering of the saints because we, we claim that we have work in the world to do. This is where we should be. We are all sharers in the life of Christ for His overarching purposes. Loving the body is our witness. So there's a matter of caution that needs to be exercised when we're interacting with the world. Even unknowingly that there's a battle for influence. And it's taking place all the time. Someone is being influenced, and if you're on the wrong end of that influence, there may even be a challenge to your identity. And we need to ensure that the world is receiving the Spirit's influence and that we're not receiving the world's influence. Paul continues this thought and encourages the church to live carefully. He says in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look carefully then how you walk. There is a personal responsibility and an ownership to, to Paul's charge. He says, be wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And maybe your Bible says, make the most of every opportunity uh, or redeem the time. You know, what is he talking about here? Uh, he's not, gonna, not really talking about those cliche notions of carpe diem, seizing the day. Uh, it's not a reminder that we're getting old, we're running out of time. Go do bucket list things. Go skydiving. Go to the Great Wall of China. Um, he's not talking about any of those things. Um, he's saying, be wise with your time. Don't be foolish with it. Make the best use of it. Make the most of every opportunity. And I don't think he's cherry-picking sin issues that are meant to um, single out certain individuals. He brings up debauchery. He being, you know, brings up drunkenness, saying don't be drunk when, with wine um, or or really indulging in any sensual pleasures. Other versions might say that, that it's debauchery. Other versions might say it's dissipation, which is a mental distraction or a diversion, which is turning aside from an original course or purpose. You have an original course. There's a, a walking in love course that God wants you to go down. You're to walk in the light. You're to be imitators of God. When you have mental distractions that are taking place, that's a deviation and a, and a departure. It's a bump in the road. It's a deflection taking you down a path that you're not supposed to go. That's not the original course that we're supposed to be taking. Those things that cause us to depart from that narrow path that the Christian is on is foolishness. Which is why Paul says that we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. So we are to redeem the time. We are to buy it up. We are to ransom the time. My favorite analogy there or, or word choice was we are to rescue it from loss. Time can get away from us. And it's a non-renewable resource. We're all running out of it. And in today's social media age, we're subjected to more news and media exposure than ever. Where everywhere we turn, there's a distraction waiting for us, even when we're idle. One guy admitted this very thing, saying, I watched my dog chase his tail for 10 minutes, thinking, wow, dogs are easily entertained. Then I realized that I've been watching my dog chase his tail for 10 minutes. There are distractions all around us, and Paul's urging us to be wise with our time, 
and rescuing it is more dire than you think because he says the days are evil. And generally speaking, he's, he's stating that it's a fallen and a, a, and a corrupt world. And it's difficult to walk in the world without suffering injury. John Calvin's commentary on this, this topic, he encourages the, the believer, stating that the price to redeem time is to withdraw from the endless variety of allurements which would easily lead us astray, to rid ourselves from the cares and pleasures of the world and to abandon every hindrance, being eager to recover it, in every possible way, and let the numerous offenses and arduous toil which many are in the habit of alleging as an apology for indolence serve rather to awaken our vigilance. There are so many things that, that are out there to distract us from walking in love, and the world's snares are, and, and the world's allurements uh, are there and they're they're tempting and there's a a great sacrifice and price to be paid and a lot of discipline to avoid the temptations of the world but what john calvin said all those years ago is spot on for for today it's the price that, that needs to be paid to redeem the time is steep. It, it involves a lot of sacrifice and discipline on our parts. And it's not for the lazy or for the faint of heart. Walking in love, understanding what the will of the Lord is, takes, takes effort and, and it takes discipline. So I'll, I'll conclude with, with this. And I know I'm stating the obvious here, but life goes by so fast. James chapter 4 says, You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our life is, is a vapor. And, and Pastor Kate read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and uh, Solomon there observed uh, that there are times for everything. And, and of course, he was wise and, and, and right and accurate in the observations that he made. Um, uh, Solomon's list wasn't intended to be an exhaustive list. I think we could also take away from his passage that we should be able to, to recognize the changes of the situations in, in our seasons of life. They may change from, from one day to the next. One, t- one day you may need to be encouraged, and another day you may need to be the encourager. There's maybe a, a time for you to teach and a time for, for you to learn, a time for you to be ministered to and a time for you to minister to others. And I, and I pray that we would think about our roles as, as Christians, as our role in the church, in the seasons of life that, that we're in, as, as our calling and vocation as workers for God's kingdom. Are we the lights and the witnesses to the world that, that we're called to be? Or are there some ways that maybe we're partnering with the world?
and that there isn't much of a distinction uh, visible between our lives and, and the life of the world. Do we love God and His church rightly? Are there things that we're more devoted to than we ought to be? Do we need to rethink what our role is and what it is that, that we're supposed to be doing? Are we being faithful to the calling with which we were called? And I pray that we wouldn't be cavalier in our walks, that we would live as though the lives of the lost hang in the balance, because they do. May we imitate God. May we walk in love for him, His name's sake and for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank You for this day. We thank You for this time that we, as brothers and sisters, can, can gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to, to glorify You, to worship You, to be hearers of, of Your Word, and to, Lord willing, be built up and strengthened in the faith so that we are the effective servants that we are called to be for, for your kingdom. And Father, we, we confess that we're not perfect. But we pray that even in that unattainable endeavor, that we would pursue it. That we would pursue You and, and even try to do the things that are pleasing to You. Father, we are humbled by Your grace, by Your generosity, by Your faithfulness to, to meet our every need. Father, we're faith, we just pray that we would be faithful uh, to You in return. And we're grateful, Father, that you, you give us your word, that you give us your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. We pray that we would live as those who try to imitate you the, the best way that, that we can. Father, we Pray that as we trust in you, that you would make our path straight and that as we depart from here, that we would go out as lights and fragrances in the world. But I pray that we would be the, the right lights and the right fragrances, that we would be lights of Christ to the world, that we would bear the fragrance of Christ. So Father, we... We pray that you would be honored and glorified as we live life, not uh, the Christian life, not just here on Sundays, but, but between Sundays, and that we would indeed be image bearers and reflect the love of the Savior uh, in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.